Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Candidate Confessional. I am Sam Stein. And I'm Jason Cherkis. Now, Jason, oftentimes early on in a campaign before a candidate has uttered his first soundbite, kissed his first baby... His resume will give us an inflated sense of how he will do in a race. Tim Pawlenty was just one of those candidates. Correct. On paper, Pawlenty seemed perfect. He's a Republican governor from Minnesota. It's an on-again, off-again swing state. He's a fiscal conservative who could relate to working-class voters. He was, as he liked to claim, a Sam's Club Republican. I'm not even sure what that means. <laughs> I have no idea what that But he was everyone's favorite runner-up for Veep. That's correct. Now, Pawlenty or Teapot, as he became known, also had, uh, how do we put this? He had a mild personality. Minnesota nice. Exactly. And in, in, in a normal election cycle, this actually might be a good thing. But when he launched his campaign for the presidency in 2011, it quickly became apparent that his party wanted more than just a sterling resume. They wanted a little fire, a little fight. And it became clear he could not provide that fight at all. So Pelenny's interview with Candidate Confessional is, in essence, a story about how hard it is to sell being no thrills, incompetent, at a time when people just wanted pure, bloody red meat. Beyond the bluster. Behind the bunting. Past the posters. After the ads. The campaign picks up. And the motorcade moves on. What happens when the votes are counted? And democracy doesn't go your way. This is Candidate Confessional, a HuffPost podcast. I'm Sam Stunn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Actually, I'm Sam Stunn. And I'm Jason Cherkis. And we approve this podcast. We want to start, actually, in the time where you did do not get the VP pick um, from Which Senator time? McCain. From Senator McCain, 2008. <laughs> What are the mental preparations after that, between that point and when you decide to run for president? I mean, everyone talks about, you know, the process of figuring out that you want to run, but how early does it actually really start, that type of thinking? You think about these things in retrospect as one big grand arc, but in the, in the moment, it evolves iteratively. So, you know, you think there was some grand strategy at a certain magical point in time, and then you, in, in the way you live your life, Sam, you'd have a roadmap, milestones, you know, checkboxes. Naturally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it, it evolves actually a little more incrementally than that. And in my case, it was, hey, look, uh, 
could I think I could do this? Do I have the skills? Do I have something to bring to the table? Do you got the requisite experience? You got a good message? Was there like a critical conversation you had with your family that was a turning point? You know, everybody always, uh, I think, thinks, well, there's there's a that magical Thanksgiving dinner where the family, <laughs> you know, you carve yes. the turkey and then the, the family, extended it really family <laughs> gathers and you deeply discuss it and then, you know, there's a vote taken. And, Sounds like and the worst Thanksgiving there's always, <laughs> there's always some, you know, five-year-old kid or grandkid who comes in with some thing that, you know, becomes a part of a speech later on or something. I, for us, I think it happened much more uh it evolved over months. Not there wasn't like a magical family, you know, summit in our you know mountaintop retreat gotcha. or something. Gotcha. But in those first strategy sessions, when it became clear that you were going to do this, you were launching a pack, and your advisors come up to you, they say, "Okay, you got to do this or this better, or you have to, you have to. This is where your weaknesses are, and this is how you have to fix them." What were they pinpointing? You know, for us, one of the things was, um, you know, everybody gets a label very quickly. You know, yeah. you've got to fill it in in three words. So, you know, Huckabee's the, you know, as an example, he's the funny guy preacher. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I forget who was running uh, last time. Um, uh, you know. You were running last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, Ron Paul was the, you know, kind of constructively eccentric libertarian. That's, and, you know, that's very kind of So you can kind of just yeah. label everybody yeah, yeah, three yeah. words and, right. and that becomes the narrative and either live or die by it, you know, unfortunately. And it's hard to reverse once it gets stuck. And so, you know, being a successful two-term governor with a blue-collar background from a Midwestern state. It's not three know, words. It's not three <laughs> words. So, you know, you got to come up with the quote-unquote brand, the narrative sure. instantly. And you know, I think we struggled with that. Where, where, where do you think you were most would have been most comfortable, the policy side or the sort of firebrand whatever side? Well, I like to think I could have done both, but mm-hmm. I think probably naturally I skewed towards the policy end of it. But, mm-hmm. you know, the reality of it is if you want to convince party activists, you know, they're not interested in page seven of your white paper on health care reform. They want to know if you're going to, you know, bash Obama. Or, did you try you that know, out? Were there times? Yeah, yeah. We did. I think we got a pretty good response. But for for whatever reason, we... And moved away from that, I think, to a slightly different place on the continuum. Where was that place, though? I think it was trying to be more of, you know, if you look at our, again, our, my campaign was very brief, so it's not like we, you know, recalibrated this 10 times over a year and a half. It, we, we had, you know, the whole campaign lasted like 10 minutes, so um, it was more, more, <laughs> more brief than, than that. that. We're talking <laughs> about the first minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. More brief than that, but... Um, <laughs> You know, our theme in the announcement with otherwise was, look, we're just going to go tell the truth. We're going to go down to Iowa. We're going to say that the time for ethanol subsidies, as an example, is going to have to wind down. Uh, we went down to Florida and gave a speech about the, telling the truth about entitlements in things like Medicaid and Medicare and retirement ages and eligibilities. You know, we went to New York and said we're going to tell the truth about Wall Street and, you know, getting out of bailouts and the rest and and on down the list. So the, the theme, the kind of organizing theme around the campaign was – the party in the country would appreciate, you know, somebody who has got the policy chops to back it up but could deliver a truth-telling message. Um, it, but it was serious. It was, a, you know, it wasn't designed to be entertaining. It was designed to kind of evoke a serious policy discussion. And, you know, I think that's – if we had to do it over again, probably had to make it more entertaining. It's hard to talk about the uh, campaign without – talking about the debate in Obamacare. President Obama is, is the person who I quoted in saying he looked to Massachusetts for designing his program. He's the one who said it's a blueprint in that he merged the two programs. And so using the term Obamacare was a reflection of the president's comments that he designed Obamacare on the Massachusetts health care plan. Tell us how that concept of that phrase came about. Well, I've 
believe I thought it up. Uh, so <laughs> you I used idea. it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the way it came about is I was in a, some kind of campaign meeting or environment, yeah. and I said, you know, let's just hook it to President Obama's proposal, and we'll call it Obamacare, and everybody loved it. So yeah. we decided to go with it. So you use it, and it gets good reviews? Yeah, I used it in a couple of speeches. I went on Sunday morning television and used it. And I think the, the strategy behind it was, you know, is this the time to have somebody take on Mitt and, again, start to establish yourself as the primary credible conservative alternative? And had no one Mitt. taken him on to that point? No, it was all, you know, the early stage of the campaign is always, you know, Reagan's 11th Amendment. We don't yeah, attack yeah. each other. You know, it, it devolves after that. But um, – <laughs> and. Uh, it's true. It's <laughs> but it always starts so that way. So in the early it. days, you know, everybody and you don't want to be that first guy. No, right? no. And yeah. then the other thing is, you know, now with super PACs, you don't need to do yeah, it because exactly. you can have your super PAC do it. But, um, you know, so the question was, it, everybody knew it was going to turn. But, who, you know, did you want it to turn early, later? And if so, one thing to keep in mind is you're going to attack somebody with, you know, $100 million in a super PAC. Do you have the ability to defend yourself? Yeah, because he's going to bring a world when, of pain on When you. the uh, counteroffensive comes. And so that was a lot of thought went into it, but we decided it was worth uh, launching at that point. And why was that? Just you, the times demanded it. Your polling numbers weren't improving. You needed to be that credible alternative? Yes. Okay. So you do it on the shows, and then ta- walk us through what happened at the debate. Well, I mean, the short version, Sam, is I just botched the answer. So, yeah, no, I mean, but and, I understand that. But yeah, what's it like internally as it's happening? Well, the, the, the actual uh, – I've shared this publicly before, but, you know, so it, we're in the debate preparation. And, again, I wish I would have just thrown this all off and just answered however the heck I wanted – but the consultants say, look, in every answer, you got to do three things, and you got to do them in this order. Mm. You know, first, if it's a question from the audience, acknowledge the audience member, empathize with their concern, and personalize it to them. That's number one. Two, no, our base loves nothing better than bashing Obama. So then you got to bash Obama. And then three, make your point. <laughs> and so, you know, I've, I've got that. And you in get my 30 mind. seconds. <laughs> and by the way, squeeze that all into 30 seconds. And, and, and look comfortable. And look comfortable doing that. <laughs> so, so I'm up on the stage, and uh, the question comes from the audience. So it's, it's on a screen from somebody, I think a woman in New Hampshire or somewhere, who asked the health care question. So I start out by, you know, acknowledging her point and attempting to empathize with the perspective that she's sharing. I'm about to get into bashing Obama. And John King, who's the moderator, you know, to his credit, he's a good moderator. He starts to get impatient with the fact that I'm not answering this question. The question, Governor, was why Obamacare? That's right. Well, I'm going to get to that, John. You have 30 uh, seconds, Governor. But I wasn't through my three-point, you know, checklist yet. <laughs> and so, so John's like, well, you know, will you use it? Will you? <laughs> and so he and I get in this back and forth. I'm off my three-point, you know, checklist. And I should have just blurted out, you know, yelled in the microphone. <laughs> yes, damn it, Obamacare. <laughs> but so you were uh, stuck with the three. And it was easy to fix. And I, look, I just, I just got stuck in that. And in frankly, uh, had the campaign been able to last and do some more debates, I think, again, that I could have overcome that. But in that moment, especially since it was, you know, in a, towards the end of what would be the end of my campaign or you know, close to what would be the end of my campaign, it was an important moment. But it wasn't terminal. No, no. It's no uh, it was no oops. It was no oops. And, and we just didn't, uh, you know, we just didn't have enough time and space. Did to, you recognize kind of, as it was happening that you sh- you needed to get that you had failed? No, I remember I, I, I thought the answer wasn't great, but I didn't think it was awful. Yeah. But I remember during a break, I was going to the bathroom or you know back to the dressing room for something during a break. You can do that? 
You can get off stage. Yeah, they have a little break. So oh, okay. Two or three no minutes. Break. I thought you just stand there. Yeah. It's like yeah. tell, you know, they got to have a commercial. Yeah, I guess um, you're right. Yeah, I didn't realize. The and I remember Nick, leave. my campaign manager, who I like a lot, was you know ashen, you know, standing back really? by one of the doors, and he's like, you know, you got to fix this. I'm like, fix what? He's like, you know, the Obama answer. Uh, <laughs> and, yeah. and then it dawned, it started to dawn on me that that you know was not just you know bumbled a little bit, but viewed as a you know major yeah. problem. And everything's happening in the moment now with social media, so it became a thing, basically. I mean, it became a thing before the debate was even over. It became yeah. a thing, you know, within minutes. And there's, I thought, well, maybe I can go back at some point in the debate and try to fix it. But then it looks ham-fisted, like you've. You know, you're going back for a half hour later. Or something. <laughs> it's in your thanks, closing statement. Yeah, thanks yeah. for that question on Iran. The other uh, thing I have to ask you about is you got I don't I don't know how to describe the reaction to you calling your wife a red hot smoking wife. Now, some of you, I hope not all of you, have seen this goofy movie called Talladega Nights. One of the scenes in the movie. At one point in the prayer, he says, "And thank you, Lord, for my red hot smoking wife." And I think that captures the sentiment about how I feel about the first lady of Minnesota, Mary Plenty, who joins me, my red-hot smoking wife, Mary Plenty. But it became like a thing. It was like, people were like, did he mean it that way? And I always thought it was like kind of cute. It was nice of you. But obviously in the context of a campaign, it was like people were almost like appalled by it. Oh, is this an attempt to be humorous and a little cute? And it's something I had done, you know, for years. So this dates yeah. back to being governor, maybe even in the legislature. So, you know, my wife and I are uh, and part of it is gauging how she feels about it. Yeah. And at least early on, she liked it. So, <laughs> and it's a, it's a it's a stolen line from you know Talladega yeah. Nights and Will Ferrell and, and Ricky, Ricky Bobby, legend Ricky Bobby. So it's all meant to be tongue in cheek. Yeah. Uh, and she kind of liked it, and it was funny. At least in Minnesota, it was funny. But I think some people in the social media sphere just didn't know what to make of it. Is he being serious? Is he being <laughs> you know a clown? Is he you know is he being disrespectful? Is he what, what is this? But that seemed to like symbolize for me another really irritating part of the campaign, which is any humanizing element that a candidate exhibits becomes interpreted through different lenses. And, or misinterpreted. Or misinterpreted in different Well, lenses. George Bush said something to me once when he was running against, uh, I guess it was John Kerry. I was on the campaign bus with him in Minnesota. And he said, look, if you haven't done this before, been really close to it, this thing is a gauntlet, the length of which, the intensity of which, you just can't fathom until you've done it. Yeah. And the amount of daily, hourly, now minute by minute concentration that this takes uh, is enormous. And he posited, and I'm paraphrasing here, that Kerry was going to, you know, break underneath that. And he did. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. 
What was the most quintessentially Iowa experience you had? You know, the State Fair, of course. Yeah. You know, go to the Iowa State Fair. But, you know, <laughs> the, the thing about Iowa that is a little understated is there's, you know, there's a commercialization of politics down there. And if you unwrap the package a little deeper, you'll see that a lot of the people who are, you know, active politically are also com- commercialized the experience. And so they're looking for jobs, for consulting gigs, for you know, some sort of service provider contract and the like. And so there's a there's a whole uh, what I'd call milieu of in political industry in Iowa that I had no idea even existed. So it's not as like homespun, oh, I just got to meet you and look you in the eye and shake your hand and then right, that'll you be gotta, You got to feed the... There's some of that, there. but there's a bunch of, uh, there's a bunch of what I'd call political leaders in Iowa who view the pro- presidential election cycle as a Their money com- commercial opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't think it's quid, you know certainly not quid pro quo. I'm just saying that you know the the press reports. Well, so and so's campaign got this big name, you know, Republican activist. Well, the big name Republican activist joined the campaign because they got hired. Exactly. It's like well, that's it's amazing how that works. <laughs> um, as you were going through Iowa, and then you, did, I mean, you came, you got in there early, and then when we talked about it, these other candidates kept coming in. And having their time in in the polls, that it felt like two weeks, and then they would flame back down. But what were you? What were your staff saying? Were like, okay, just wait your time, and you'll get your run. No, you know, I remember one. Uh, there was one important staff meeting or you know campaign meeting where we became clear that Michelle Bachman was going to get in the race, and one person alone, who was sort of uh, to call uh, not the most outspoken or even senior staff member, kind of at the very end, said, "Do you know? I think we. Do you think we should?" revisit our straw poll strategy and commitment to it and this amount of dedication of resources to it because, you know, knowing what we know about her and the caucuses, it seems like that's just perfectly lined up for her. Yeah. And, you know, wouldn't be be better off to kind of let that run its course a little bit so everybody can get a full view of, of her campaign and our campaign and everybody kind of instantly poo-pooed it. No, 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 you know, we're too far into it. And, <laughs> and we you can't back out, and, you know, tone back or scale back now for blah, blah, blah. And I think that turned out to be a good question and, and something that I think we would have been well served to just say, hey, look, most of the major campaigns aren't participating, you know, in light of – uh, Michelle Bachman's coming into the race. We're just going to step back, yeah. still participate, but just not push. Well, she, she gave you the excuse at that point to back out, which is kind of what you needed in, in a way. And I don't. And I, I think we still would have participated, but I, I think we would just take our lumps and finish second or third, and then continue to plow on. Um, again, there's so many straw polls now, and they come so fast and furiously. And the Iowa straw poll, by even by the press, has been so you know. Uh, better understood and contextualized that uh, literally a week later, nobody cared. Why make it the big thing? Why make it that important? Why is that important? Well, I think, again, on, under our theory of the case, which was Mitt's going to break out, we got to look for some early opportunity to be identified as the primary conservative alternative before he breaks away. Um, we viewed that as the opportunity to do that. Plus, you know, a neighboring state governor, Midwestern governor, how do you explain not either participating or not doing well in the straw poll? So for all those reasons, we kind of looked to that as a – and we thought we could win it or at least do really well. Um, we looked to that as an opportunity. Um, it turns out, as you know, the straw poll isn't a good predictor of anything. It's not a good predictor of who's going to win the caucuses. It's not a good predictor of who's going to win the nomination. It's not a good predictor of who's going to win the presidency. And the – Methodology around it is, you know, highly suspect. Presumably, you knew that uh, going in, though, right? We did. So, what was your strategy about how to win it? Well, our strategy to how to win it was to outorganize everybody and you know make sure we had a good grassroots effort in Iowa, which we did. But um, I think Michelle became 
you know, given the nature of the straw poll and who shows up and why they show up and, and, and the like, I think she had a, even a bigger claim to that audience than we did. You know, well, I think, uh, I think you know, Congresswoman Bachman you know, was certainly viewed by some as a fringe person, but I saw her in Minnesota as a pretty effective grassroots organizer. And you know, she's somebody who captured, at least at the party level or the grassroots level, a lot of followers. So I was under no delusion that she wouldn't be an effective um, both media person but also you know, grassroots organizer and, and at that level. What I, what I also believe, though, is that you know, she probably wasn't going to be the nominee. But, that the, again, the price of finding that out is you've got to have enough resources to stick around and well, see Well, give us a sense of the scale of the investment that you actually made. What are we talking about? Oh, I, you know, between the PAC and the campaign, you know, it couldn't have been more than six or seven million dollars. But, again, we were out of the race That's by it? August. That's it? Just six <laughs> <laughs> just Yeah, yeah. And I'm just guessing. So I think All that, on the straw poll. Yeah. yeah. When did you know you were going to lose? I knew I was going to lose when I – went to look at Michelle Bachman's tent. Actually, I was brought over to look at a wind turbine. So this was one of the giant, you know, wind power Mm -hmm. turbines. Um, And the line to get into Michelle Bachman's tent at the Iowa straw poll was like, you know, wrapped three times around the building. And she had Randy (laughs) Travis. Oh, shit. uh, She pulled the Travis card. Yeah, yeah, the Travis card. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, it was pretty clear just based on the, the amount of people streaming in and out of her tent. Um, and what that meant for the straw poll results that lose. But on that day, so we had some hopes, high hopes coming in. I don't think we needed to win it. I think if you you know would have been roughly clumped, uh, or if Ron Paul just won it outright, mm-hmm. you know people would say, "Well, that's Ron Paul." Um, yeah. But we came third. Yeah, and that was devastating. It, again, it, it seemed devastating at the time. Yeah. But that isn't why we got out of the race. I got out of the race because we were out of money. After the straw poll, when did you make the decision to drop out? I forgot. Was it like the that next day? night? That, that night, yeah. announced it the next morning. My wife and I went up to a town north of Ames. I forget the name of it, and we went to a Mexican uh, restaurant and had uh, margaritas and Mexican food. Well, what was <laughs> how, many, how many margaritas? Yeah. <laughs> one big one. I think. <laughs> but what did it was you, the size of a fish? Yeah, exactly. Oh, no, no. <laughs> it had a fish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, take us to the the restaurant and what, what did you guys? How did you hash it well, out? It, it evolved a little more uh, incrementally than that because one of the concerns I had leading up to this was, you know, how are we really doing financially as a campaign? And regardless of the outcome of the straw poll, where are we going to be? And that week leading up to the straw poll, I learned, you know, incrementally that we were in – there was more concern in that regard than I thought. And I think it was on the eve of the straw poll that the team said, look, you know, you get out soon. We can avoid being in debt. But if you continue on much after this, you know, our run rate, our burn rate on salary and overhead and all the stuff, you know, unless you raise this, we're going to be this far in the hole. Um and, and then it dawned on me right as the straw poll was coming up and on the day that, you know, we had a financial problem. And so the main reason for trying to bring the campaign to a head in that moment was to avoid what I'd call a McCain-esque financial problem. <clears throat> and, I, and ours wasn't at the same level because we had a much smaller campaign. But, you know, the alternative was to dramatically scale back the campaign and then go live off the land, as they call it, um, and did you try talk, to forge ahead. Did you talk to McCain about this? I mean, I presumed he would have because... No, it had happened pretty quickly. I mean, okay. from the time I realized the magnitude of the problem to the time we got out of the race was less than a week, and I was busy, you know, during the yeah. ramp up to the straw poll. And did you give any serious consideration to doing what he did, which is essentially flying coach with one person? 
um, you know, we thought about that. I, I actually like that idea. And I think for me in particular, that would have been appealing because, uh, you know, driving around Iowa in a pickup truck with one other person might have been fun. But there was a lot of having watched campaigns that go into debt and for years and years and years can never get out. And there's some people who ran for president last year were still in Newt. debt. Newt. Yeah. Still in debt. Um, and it's really difficult to pay off those campaign debts after the campaign's over. So I had a window of time, a moment of time to make the decision and maintain kind of financial sanity around it. And that's the primary, you know, almost the exclusive reason I made the decision to get out of the race at the time. You know, I was I was uh, fascinated by the idea that when you look at sort of every box you're supposed to check, right? You know, you hired the right campaign manager. Everyone wanted Nick Ayers. You you know you got in fairly early. You had that record. You were you know the blue collar conservative governor. Um, so you had this ideal perception of what a candidate should be, and yet it wasn't clicking. The thing that I think ultimately was our undoing, and this is all retrospective, sure. is. We didn't have the money to stay in long enough to get a full and fair hearing, I don't think. So, you know, if you look at the race, our premise was Mitt Romney was going to be so well financed and the rest of the field so uh, limited that he was going to break away from the pack early and never look back over his shoulder. And if we didn't take our very limited resources and make some progress early, as the main, you know, viable, credible, conservative alternative to Mitt, you know, he was going to be gone and leave everybody else in the rearview mirror and it would be over by Iowa or New Hampshire. That didn't happen, but that was our premise. Yeah. And so we put down a disproportionate amount of our limited resources early on the Iowa straw poll. And frankly, a week later, nobody cared about the Iowa straw poll. And it was a really a false setup in the sense that, you know, we didn't we, – uh, once Michelle Bachman got in the race late – Knowing what we knew about her, knowing what we know about the Iowa straw poll, I think we would have been better served to pull down some of our activities except a second or third place hit in that straw poll and live to fight another day because for each month there was a flavor of the month. I mean, believe it or not, Herman Cain was leading for a month. Yeah. Michelle Bachman was leading we for a month. We were remember the moment uh, where we you know, had to decide whether to you know, cover him. Bachman's yeah. leading for a month. Yeah. Newt's leading for a month. Santorum's leading for a month. And the campaign turned out to be much more elongated than, you than we anticipated. And the other thing we I underestimated was just how much money it takes to hang in there. So I think to, to you know, get anti-money to be credible for four or five states, you need $50 million bucks. And the other thing we missed is the advent of the super PAC. I remember Mitt coming to see me at the governor's residence in uh, Minnesota, and I was still governor, and he was thinking about running. I was at least thinking about running. I shared We shared our views, and we were friends and got yeah. along you know, well. And he said, Timmy, have you thought about or heard about you know these – in the, the wake of this court decision, this thing called a super PAC. And changed perhaps forever by the U.S. Supreme Court. In these GOP primaries, we are seeing almost unlimited amounts of money, almost all of it spent on attack ads, the air war, almost all of it spent by these so-called super PACs. I remember <laughs> laughing afterwards with some of the, my staff and team and consultants. I'd say, yeah, I need a super PAC, too. Like, you know, I didn't even know what it was. I'm like, I'm like, Sounds cool, though. I'm like, yeah, I went back and kind of like jokingly said, yeah, I need a super PAC, too. Let's all get a super PAC, you know, blah, 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 super PAC. But it turned out, you know, he and others saw the significance of that court decision 
and again, appropriately, and not with his orchestrating, and presumably a bunch of his friends who were able to do it, both financially and politically, put it together. And then Newt was kept alive in part, you know, by one large super PAC donor, and Santorum was kept alive in part by one large super PAC donor. And we didn't even—I didn't even know what it was. I mean, until we were well into the race, and I remember thinking, "Damn, I wish we would have had a super PAC." <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't—that's the thing. That's the beauty of the super PAC that it doesn't take that much to get it going. You, you could have, need one yeah, you just need one guy. Sets up a five hundred one c four. A billionaire is willing to, you know, write a pretty big check. That was Tim Pawlenty, former Minnesota governor and presidential candidate in 2012, who joined us here in the studio on Candidate Confessional. It was a good conversation. Next week, we are joined with a special guest, former RNC chairman and Maryland Senate candidate Michael Steele. For a really, really deep conversational race. It's good. It's a great one. Very good conversation. And, of course, a big thanks to Christine Canetta, our fearless editor, for putting this all together. As always, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or check us out at HuffingtonPost.com. Please join us next week and happy trails. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.